Welcome to The Crux, and today we have a special edition, if you will, of The Crux this week. We've invited Michelle Guida, who's the Executive Vice President of Geopolitical Strategy and Risk at Weber Shanwick, and a former Undersecretary of State for the U.S. State Department, to talk with us about the Russian invasion of Ukraine and specifically about how multinationals either who do business in Russia or will be affected by this European war, how they should think about the risks associated with that. I think you're going to hear a lot of really interesting and good advice from Michelle. The thing that stuck with me after we did this interview was the idea that for multinationals on these issues that are so complex, global issues, there really is no frictionless, quote unquote, path. And, and I think that's a great expectation to set inside companies as you handle these global issues. So let's go to the interview with Michelle and Mike. And thanks for listening to The Crux. Welcome to The Crux. Each week, two of the world's top communicators take you behind the scenes of the news of the day to explore the crux of communications that are shaping business, politics, and our daily lives. Hi, this is Gary Sheffer. And hi, I'm Mike Fernandez, and we're glad to be with you from Boston University. Hello, this is Gary Sheffer, and I'm here with Mike Fernandez. Hi, Mike. Hi, how's it going, Gary? We're really excited to have with us this week on The Crux, Michelle Gaida. And so who better to talk to about the situation in Ukraine, the Russian invasion uh, that's about a week old now. We're going to talk to her about what multinational companies should be doing from a risk and reputation standpoint, and some recent studies that are right on point with this issues from Weber Shanwick related to geopolitics and geopolitical risk. So, Michelle, welcome to The Crux. Thank you, Gary. Thank you, Mike, for having me. I'm, I'm really delighted to be here. So I want to start with a, a general question going back to your State Department days. So as something like this was happening, again, meaning the Russian invasion of Ukraine, what was your day like? What was your top priority when you came to work on a day like last Friday? Yeah, I'll say when a crisis, and in this case, an invasion like this takes place, the State Department mobilizes all across the entire department. Normal day would include several task force meetings across the department with the secretary, with the top leadership. Uh, Our priority always was the safety and security of our State Department employees, especially our, our Foreign Service officers and others deployed in the field in our embassies and, and other areas where conflicts and issues were taking place, as well as the safety and security of American sure. citizens and, of course, our, our partners and our allies that we were working with based on the situation. Our teams would go into task force mode to mobilize as much information and intelligence as possible. Gary, you and I have talked before about the restructuring that I did at the State Department 
it was the, the largest restructuring at the department in 20 years. And the goal with that very large effort was to modernize how we communicate, how we right. engage all across the world in this type of modern information environment. One of the things that was most valuable in that effort was our increase, our huge increase of our capabilities in data analytics and research. And there were a couple instances even during my tenure there and, and crises during my tenure there where that our ability to communicate, to understand the information environment was very well served by our, our capabilities in data research and analytics. We increased our investment in that capability eightfold through the restructuring. And so our ability to understand conversations that were taking place all across the world in social and in traditional media, uh, we had media hubs in uh, six international media hubs across the world that could understand key narratives, key emerging narratives, not only in the region in question, but in other parts of the world. Because as you know, and, and as you know, many of your listeners know, it's all interconnected. And so, for example, this, this invasion that is taking place in Ukraine, many colleagues, many organizations, many governments in Asia Pacific are watching what is taking place and is certainly top of mind. And so we had to have the capabilities to understand the media and information environment in every part of the world. That's interesting. Well, communications, Michelle, has been such an important part of this crisis and, and, and the invasion. We'll get to that in a minute. But I, I do want to ask, so in those meetings, those task forces, and given the capabilities that you just mentioned that you put in place, how did communications and, and ultimately, I would assume, a State Department statement or briefing for the president, uh, et cetera, is it sort of like you see in corporate suites, which is what I'm familiar with, where, you know, your your executive suite gets together and says, OK, this is the policy and this is the statement. Communications is very much front and center and at the table in every decision that is being made. And, and not just at the State Department, but I think that that is true across government and across politics. I always you know, somewhat jokingly right. <laughs> for, for folks who are familiar and who watched The West Wing, if you look at the president's inner circle in that show, it is a press secretary, it's a deputy press secretary, it's a comms director, it's a speechwriter, it's a deputy comms director, and then there's the chief of staff, and then, or, you know, and then there's a policy person. But the majority of that inner circle is communications. That's a TV show, but I think it draws a nice model um, and underscores how critical communications is amid politics amid policy. And I think as more organizations, multinational organizations get pulled into, as we are seeing right now, get pulled into political events and geopolitical events, it is just underscoring how core and how critical communications is to any strategy that they are putting together and, and certainly have to be at the forefront of designing strategies and actions and not just communicating about them on the back end. Absolutely. Yeah, it, in, in some ways, Michelle, and thank you for joining us, but my early life in politics, I'd have to agree with you in the sense that if you look at sort of an election, normally it's, you know, 50% plus one wins the election. A lot of businesses survive with, you know, 10, 15, 12% share of the marketplace. So communications really matters in politics. But I want to switch gears a little bit 
you and your team at Weber Shanwick recently put out a report that hits pretty close to home right now. It states that nearly 58% of CEOs say where their company is headquartered, their home country, is a very important stakeholder to their business. And national security in the whole scheme of things is rated 6 to 10% higher in importance by these CEOs than things like diversity and inclusion, ESG and climate change when it comes to making business decisions. Michelle, given the Russian invasion of Ukraine, what are you seeing from multinationals and what do you expect to see in the coming weeks and months as important decisions for CEOs and CCOs at these companies uh, emerge? Thank you, Mike. I think we are seeing home governments and governments across the world really put pressure on organizations to take a position. In some cases, that is through new regulations. We've seen many sanctions roll out over the course of the past few days and week. I think they will continue to implement new sanctions and new regulations, export controls and things like that. So in some cases, organizations are responding directly to what their home governments and other governments are requiring them to do when it comes to Russia and Ukraine and other parts of Europe. We're also seeing governments put public pressure on organizations to take steps beyond that. And I'll call attention directly to the vice prime minister and head of digital transformation, Mm -hmm. Mikhailo Fedorov in Ukraine, who has since the second day of the invasion taken to Twitter and been calling out directly CEOs by name, organizations by name, asking them in the name of democracy, in the face of authoritarianism, in the name of corporate social responsibility to take actions that support Ukraine and or um, help isolate Russia economically. And some of those CEOs have responded in kind, but he is publishing the letters that he has, he has uh, written to them. Elon Musk replied pretty swiftly um, saying that they were going to activate Starlink, that, that Starlink was activated in Ukraine and that more terminals are on the way. We've now seen photographs of terminals and and, um, arriving in Ukraine. And so there is this very real public pressure coming from government on multinationals to take positions. As of this morning, I also saw the Ukrainian government had tweeted calling on people to reach out to European, American, and British companies who are doing, as they say, $700 million worth of trade with Russia, calling on people to call those companies and ask them to exit from the Russian market. There is now a handle called Boycott Russia. (laughs) So we are watching the information statecraft aspect of this this hybrid war take place and a lot of public pressure coming from different governments on multinationals to take a position even beyond what they're requiring by regulation. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. And I I don't know that everyone totally appreciates the interconnectedness and the interdependencies that are there in in many different levels. I know in the report, you talk about how do you deliver value to your home country and how does a business contribute to home country's national security? But at the same time, these aren't necessarily easy 
things for or easy questions for organizations to answer. I mean, on one hand, I think this is much more complex for multinationals than some might think. You know, a multinational might have employees and operations in both the Ukraine and Russia, like my former employer Cargill. Those employees in both locations, no doubt, are worried about, you know, what to do about securing assets, uh, securing themselves and their families, worried about their next paycheck supply chains for all kinds of different goods and commodities are being broken right before our eyes. We just saw BP this week uh, felt compelled to divest its nearly 20% share of Rusnev, the uh, Russian oil company. On another level, there's uh, the broad impact not only on energy and food prices. You think you're worried about inflation now, <laughs> you know, uh, but farmers and ranchers in Europe, Russia, Ukraine, they're all going to be challenged in this process. And we're also going to likely be challenged in ways that are unexpected as U.S. citizens. Some U.S. citizens rightly assume that the largest exporter of oil to the U.S. is Canada. They may be surprised to know that the second largest exporter of oil is Russia. <laughs> And then there are the increasing risks associated with Russia's response to U.S. and European sanctions, particularly enhanced cyber risk. And, you know, so as you look at all of that, how should companies be preparing for the many risks and dislocations that yet await them? You, you said it at the beginning, Mike, where with this data point that we uncovered from our study about national security being much higher in importance, according to executives, than even such factors as ESG and climate change and diversity inclusion. But you framed it as this sparks new questions. And that's exactly the intention of our, our research and the report that we did, because this is a new and important question, and we're seeing it unfold before our eyes. But what is a company's role in national security? And as organizations are starting to think about their role, let's say from an ESG perspective, what is their role in, in contributing to or not harming the environment? What is their role from a social standpoint, um, a governance standpoint? One of the questions that, that we believe they should be asking based on our research is what is our role in national security? And there are a lot of different answers to that question. One of the areas of consistency between the Trump administration and the Biden administration is this mantra that economic security is national security. Okay, well, if that is true, then how does an organization contribute to economic security and thus national security? Health security, as we saw through the pandemic, another version of national security. And the list goes on and on. Education can, could, be, could be considered a national security issue. So as organizations are thinking about the value that they ultimately contribute mm -hmm. to the world, how to think about that in a national security context. And I think many of them are going through that exercise at this moment in thinking about how they contribute to their own country's security or the security of, of other countries across the world. So, so Michelle, as you work with clients on issues like this, how what do you advise them in other words as they're going through these exercises that you just mentioned given the and I'll tell you a story about GE's involvement in Russia in a minute which I think you and I have talked about previously but what do you advise them how do they think about this role 
as having a role in national security? Yeah, the advice that we are giving and the counsel we are giving are asking these new sets of questions based on the evolving role of business in geopolitics. And again, we're seeing that unfold. And then it's less about giving hard and fast advice because it all has to be very tailored and nuanced and more about let's consider the new type of risk calculus that exists mm-hmm. based on exactly. a, a new stakeholder that matters, home country as a stakeholder, and think about the risks and rewards and requirements and expectations of company actions based on the national security factor, based on the home country stakeholder, and start to think about how this should inform their approach. One of the things that I always underscore, and this was became wildly clear during my tenure at the State Department, is that in diplomacy, there is no frictionless path. You never land on an idea where there are no risks or where there are no yes. challenges. It is understanding and being very eyes wide open about the risks and about the rewards of any course of action and then moving forward appropriately. So it is, it's less about finding the right answer and, and about being prepared for the approach that you decide to take. So Michelle, for the, bo- the bottom line for companies is there is no perfect answer here on, on how you do this, Correct. right? That, uh, and, and values, of course, we always lean back on our values. I, I remember <laughs> back in 2014, we, we were one of the companies that uh, I believe at the time when Putin went into Crimea, we had signed a, a number of JVs with Rosneft and another conglomerate in Russia related to healthcare. And when he went into Crimea, invaded Crimea and took control, they had electricity problems, power generation problems, because they imported a lot from Ukraine. And that ended, of course, with the invasion. And Putin wanted GE to bring in, given our relationship, bring in generators to the Crimean Peninsula. And ultimately, we said, no, it was not an easy decision. But ultimately, we leaned back on our values and said, this isn't home country played a big part in that, Michelle, our values. But you can imagine how our employees, as Mike referenced, our employees in Russia, you know, had a different point of view. Sure. And and to your point, it's it's being eyes wide open about that and understanding that. And so one of the key things that we're also advising clients and was critical to the State Department, and I believe anybody who works at a, a foreign ministry anywhere in the world, is the amount of, of data and insights and intelligence that you have. In order to make the right decisions, you've got to be as informed as possible. And so here's another moment that just underscores for multinationals to have the best tools and systems and processes in place to understand what their employees are, you know, their attitudes, their perceptions of things, exactly. their consumers or customers, the public, their home government, other governments, but to have all of those information feeds in order to make the best decision. But I will caveat that by saying you never have the perfect amount of information and generally you are making these decisions with imperfect information. Exactly. But you know, That's just underscores sure. the need for, for as much good information as possible. Yeah, so, so, so I, I guess I'll pick up on, on where Gary was a little bit. It, you know, it, it's always interesting to me when we look at the global arena 
and there are issues emerging and different governments and different organizations want large companies to stake out a position. And then sometimes also companies want to stake out a position that makes a lot of sense maybe in their home market, but could have repercussions in other areas. As, as a classic point, I remember when I was at Cargill and Cargill took a position in, in support of gay marriage. There had been lots of initiatives, one in the state of Minnesota where they're headquartered to, to block gay marriage and different executives, including the CEO and the person who would later become CEO, had come out against that initiative in support so that they were in a position in support of gay marriage. And that created negative repercussions in markets like Russia and Indonesia, where there are actually laws against gays even being open in public about certain things. I wonder if you could speak to that in terms of how does you know the State Department provide guidance on one level from your your previous role and then in the current role, how do you kind of help educate large clients on what the consequences or repercussions might be in taking a stance that might not be as well received in other places as it might be in their home country? Thanks, thanks, Mike. I think the the initial starting point on understanding the whole set of risks associated with any decision is getting in there and workshopping to get to that point. That means, and this will sound somewhat technical, but it's working through the list of all relevant stakeholders across all relevant markets. And so one of the things that all multinational organizations and global organizations we believe are increasingly noticing and thinking about is, you know, a decision you make in one market is has repercussions, as you said, in another. And so how do you systematically make sure that you're taking into account the attitudes and perceptions of stakeholders in all relevant markets? How are you comparing it against how you've behaved or spoken before? What is a precedent that you have set? What is a precedent that other organizations have set on such an issue? How are your employees going to feel about your decision? How are they going to react to your decision across markets? And go down the list from for all stakeholders, customers, shareholders. How is media going to perceive some of this stuff? And, and get that all out in the open. And based on those mm-hmm. factors um, and anticipated responses, then make a decision based on, on risk and reward. But it, it, it is really just ensuring that the decision-making is very comprehensive, taking into account all of the geographies and markets that matter and all of the stakeholders that matter and looking at things in the short term and in the long term. One of the things that we are underscoring right now is whatever companies are doing, whatever they are saying when it comes to the invasion in Ukraine is setting a precedent for how they act or speak when another such instance will likely happen. So thinking about what they're doing to set a bar, not only for their organization, but how multiple businesses respond in such situation, that is taking place right now. And so to be thinking about not only what it means to their their relevant stakeholders in this moment in time, but for the the next decade and perhaps even beyond. So I was reading just the other day and there was an interview with FedEx founder Fred Smith 
And he said at the end of the day, we talk a lot about inflation and economics, but he says in large measure, this whole thing is about energy. It's going to be punishing for European consumers, American consumers will feel it as well. We're going to have a lot higher gas prices. How should multinationals, particularly energy companies, be communicating about the impact of sanctions on consumer prices, energy prices, and ultimately their performance going forward, because a lot of these companies also aren't going to necessarily uh, meet their quarterly targets that were set out for Wall Street maybe late last year, early this year. Mike, I think whether it's energy or whether it's any other organization reliant upon some sort of commodity, I think you mentioned earlier food and wheat in particular from Russia, other metals, whether it's the energy sector, whether it's the food sector, whether it's a retail sector, whether it's finance, we see a lot of companies being well served by communicating to the degree possible very proactively. Uh, to their shareholders, to their customers, to their employees about the impact of what the sanctions will have, the regulations will have, um, and the invasion will have on their business. And so being as forthcoming as they can, taking into account the safety and security of, of some of their employees across their global footprint, but beyond even energy, we see a lot of companies benefiting from from proactively communicating about the impact on their business. In some cases, and, and I think all of these sanctions and, and regulations are rolling out in real time. It feels like there's a new one every day. And so in some cases, I think they're, they're simply communicating that we are looking at and analyzing and assessing the impact of these sanctions on our business and we'll continue to communicate with you. I think recognizing that there is, there is a lot still developing in real time. So Michelle, I wanna come back to the, something you said earlier and then ask you a couple questions about communications related to the war in Europe, which is probably how we should refer to it in its simplest form, because it is. Uh, you called it a hybrid war. Um, what did you mean by that? Yes. I believe that we are seeing a new version of modern warfare take place, and it is hybrid warfare, which means that it is information warfare, it is economic warfare, it is technological warfare, and it's kinetic warfare. All of these areas we are seeing impact business. We're also seeing business having an impact in, in all or at least some of these areas. And so it's really interesting to think about the multidimensional nature in which this war is taking place. I mentioned information, for example. We know there's a lot of disinformation. There's a lot of propaganda mm -hmm. taking place in addition to just, I'll say, the fog of war and some of the real-time reporting that is inaccurate at first and then accurate later because facts are, you know, are being revealed as things develop. But there is certainly an information warfare piece to this, information statecraft taking place. The technological Absolutely. piece, cyber attacks are incredibly top of mind. Um, but, but that being discussed as a retaliatory tool by Russia, by other governments, or even rogue actors in response to what's going on in Ukraine. And, and so on and so on and so you and, and economic warfare, for example, the sanctions that are taking place, the export controls. But you see the United States, you see Europe and many European countries taking actions to isolate Russia economically. And so there are many dimensions to this war. And, and I'll just say anecdotally, you know, I find it interesting how much terms like 
NATO, Article 5, sanctions, de-swifting, have now worked their way into the vernacular yes. of conversations, just as other methods of waging <laughs> exactly. war in previous generations have. Before, we were familiar with bombs and guns and attacks and tanks. And now we're talking about de-swifting yeah. and different financial policy tools that are also now a part of warfare. So it, it's interesting to see this modern and multidimensional nature of warfare take place before our eyes and, and mm -hmm. the degree to which business is impacted and can impact each of those things. You know, I, I was going to have a quiz tonight in my crisis class, Michelle, uh, and I scrapped it because there's just so much to talk about. Uh, and students yes. are very happy, by the way. <laughs> yes. They're like, They're, Let's please talk. Yeah, exactly. So um, including our great graduate assistant, Anna, who's producing this podcast, who's on with us. But th there is so much to talk about, and I'm going to steal liberally from you uh, on some of the things that you've had to say today. But I, I can't help, you know, the, the boycott Russia, the, the, you know, the direct tweeting and appeals to members of the European Union for admission to NATO. It, it really has been remarkable. And just a week ago in The New York Times, there was a column saying about President Zelensky of the U Ukraine, this clown is in over his head, right? And, and about how he was unprepared for a conflict with Russia. Well, lo and behold, it, it would appear that he was supremely prepared, particularly on the communications front. And I just want to get your observations about that. Yeah, I, I think it's been fascinating to watch how much the Ukrainian government, whether it's their official government handle, whether it is their in, you know, individual prime, uh, vice prime minister tweeting, but how proactive they have been and speedy they have been in communicating yeah. their position, in calling out for help, in sharing images of what is actually taking place over there. And so they are definitely playing a, a critical and really this fascinating role in in communicating around modern day warfare. But, you know, you'll see uh, Zelensky, he is doing video calls. He's appearing from different locations and very proactively asking for help. Yeah. And so very interesting to see this somewhat raw communications take place from a government. You know, government communication is, is stale. You know, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's press totally. release that go through many reviews. It is very deliberate language. And in this case, you see by necessity, emotion behind these communications, speed, like I said, rawness coming from a government and, and heads of state. Very, very fascinating to watch. And, and, by, and by contrast, Michelle, the Russians and Putin look like their communications are from World War I. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's really these, these long tables, ornate you know, rooms, thunderbolts from on high, just, and, and I, I, I don't remember in an international situation like this, such a clear self-identification of good and evil, <laughs> you know, and that's what it comes down to yeah. in this case is the scrappy underdog Ukrainians against what was once referred to by a Republican. I can't remember his name as the evil empire. Reagan. That's it. Reagan. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The evil, <laughs> the evil empire. But you know, it is, it's very interesting to watch. You know, you talked about some of the, the information or the, the propaganda really coming out from 
from Russia, but the actions that have taken place over the past few hours or days even from many social media platforms that have essentially banned yeah. RT Correct. from from broadcasting, not only mm -hmm. uh, in, in parts of Ukraine, but across Europe for the time being. So we're seeing very bold and forward-leaning actions by these organizations to, to play a role in the information landscape. Yeah. You know what I'd be curious of, Michelle, is just as we're talking about communications and, and, and the political interplay with communications from a Ukraine and Russia perspective, you come out of the world of politics. Gary and I started in the world of politics. I'd be very curious on your take around how our politicians are communicating. I know that there's not necessarily full alignment within the Republican Party. They're even in terms of what sanctions and when and how quick to do things. There's some dissonance even in the Democratic Party. How do you rate kind of the, the U.S. political leaders and how they're responding? And what are you what do you think could be the result of all of that politically, you know, end of the year and two, two to three years out? I think what we're seeing among American political communications is what we always see among American political communications, and that it's really messy. <laughs> and it is one of the strengths of our, of our country and our organization. It's frustrating. And like I said, it's messy. But that's what you get in a society where there is a free press and, and free speech, including our, our political and our government leaders. And I think just from the lens of having worked at the State Department and seeing how other information environments and other governments control information environments, I have a new respect and gratitude for the, the ways in which we communicate, even our leaders communicate as frustrating and, and when we disagree, because it so exemplifies one of the ways in which we stand out from, from other countries in the world. Last question, Michelle. So. We're in the early days of this, which looks like uh, it'll be something that'll be with us for a while. And, and certainly there's been a dramatic and sudden repositioning of a number of things, including how Europe views Russia and, 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 and such. What should companies over the long haul, what should be a long-term consideration for multinationals as they think of the fallout of this invasion? You know what, if, if I could add just one other thought to that too, if there are companies you think are doing a particularly good job in the mix of this, I think we'd like to know that. I think in the long term, amid the rise of ESG and conversations about the role of business in the world, I believe that we are seeing democracy and its survival in the face of authoritarianism assert its place as perhaps the global ESG issue of our time. The statements, the actions that organizations are taking now in response to the invasion mm. of Ukraine is setting a precedent for how business leaders are expected to respond to this challenge. It is neither the first nor the last time wow. that organizations are going to need to decide if or where or how they play a role in supporting a democratic nation under threat. And that, I believe, is the long-term implication of what we're seeing take place right now. By the way, you know, it, it's it's not something that we've talked about a lot in communication circles. This was the issue that took up most of my time at GE. Mm. 
where we did business in 180 countries. Mm. And, and, and there were much, there were other things that, you know, got more press and more attention. So I totally agree with you is on this home country issue and on the role of multinationals in national security, huge amount of my time at GE was spent on that. And, and to your, your question, Mike, about who's doing it right, I think, look, time will tell. I think there are a number of organizations that are making an impact right now that, you know, we are seeing and that they are seeing, you know, some positive response and some positive impact from their actions. But I think, it, you know, it's still a, a live event, an evolving event. I think we are going to see more companies start to get involved because of public pressure, because of government pressure, because of employee pressure. And I think, you know, who did it right will be something for us to certainly take a look at and assess based on criteria that needs to be determined. But, you know, I think there are some that are that are pretty proactively choosing to contribute to the situation, to help support the situation in the ways that they are best and uniquely positioned to, and seeing some pretty positive reaction from that. Because like, you know, like you said, Gary, this is war right. and lives are at stake. A nation is at stake. The future of the world order is at stake. What does that mean for a business and what it should be saying and doing right now? Terrific. Michelle, this has been fantastic. I've got all the material I need for my classes today. <laughs> thank you very much. And thank you for being on the cross. Yeah, thank you very I'm, much. I'm so glad. I'm so glad to have joined. Thank you very much for having me. Take care. Thanks for listening to The Crux, and make sure to listen for our next episode. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and on Twitter, and you can find our episodes on SoundCloud and on our website, thecruxpodcast.org.